leadership in cybersecurity isn't just about understanding threats. It's about leading a team to navigate them with confidence. At CPF Coaching LLC, we specialize in taking your leadership skills to the next level. With over 15 years in the cybersecurity field, we empower professionals and startups to reach unprecedented heights. Imagine having a personalized coaching experience tailored to your unique career ambitions. From strategic planning to masterful pitch and interview preparations, we're here to guide you through every challenge. Join us for our unique value proposition workshops or dive into our vibrant learning community for continuous skill advancement. Don't just be a part of the industry. Redefine it. Visit cpfcoaching.com for more information. Discover the leader within. Contact CPF Coaching LLC today and schedule your strategic session. and welcome to another episode of Breaking into Cybersecurity, CISO Thursdays. And today we have two CISOs on, Mr. James Azar and Mr. Ryan Lyric. And today's focus will be on how to develop a well-managed and measured security program. But before we get into all that, if you are joining us on LinkedIn, Thank you very much. Please follow all of our guests. If you're following us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe and hit that notification button. And if you're joining us after the fact on podcasts, feel free to share with all your friends and family. So first off, Mr. James Azar, how are you doing today? You know, I am, uh, it's it's Thursday and I'm living the dream and it's, it's, it's we're wrapping up 2021, man. What can be more exciting than getting older by a year? Okay, over to Ryan. Ryan, give us a little bit of background about yourself um, to introduce yourself to our guests. Great. I want to react to James's comment. The best thing I've seen for the ending of this year, 2021, is a picture of a dumpster fire of 2020 with a picture of a dumpster fire of 2021 inside of 2020. So happy to have uh, the year's ending. I think that a lot of people might relate to that. Was there a log for Jay um, sign underneath blowing up the two dumpster fires? Oh my gosh, no kidding. That set the internet on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so um, today's focus is CISOs that want to, or individuals that want to become CISOs or CISOs in general that want to develop and create a well-managed security program. And the, the idea behind this conversation is oftentimes individuals come into these roles and you're taking that technology first approach, having that ad hoc fire incident response situation. How do we go in and create a program that works for everyone and is able to accurately measure progress 
so that the board can see that you're actually making progress and you're enabling the business versus just a cost center to the organization. Brian, do you want to start? Yeah, no, it's a great topic and, and one that we all struggle with, right? Um, so one of the challenges that I see, Christoph, the way you've laid it out is that typically there's so many things thrown at you, you know, early on that we typically don't have like a structured way of, of looking at it, right? So, you know, <clears throat> your job as a CISO is really to be a sort of a, you know, very transparent um, communicator of the risk the way you see it, right? The organization itself owns the risk, right? And cybersecurity risk is part of that. And typically your job is to find out where that, where that risk exists and be transparent about what it looks like, put some crisp words to it and, you know, impact to the organization and then communicate it straight to, you know, this, the more senior folks and potentially board members on what the risk is. And there's a lot to, you know, to, to cover there. Um, so, you know, one of the tricks are always to find a very quick and easy, you know, we love the term frameworks, but you know, a really quick and easy framework. It's like, all right, what are we, what are we doing? Um, and you know, how does it, how does it, how does this work? Um, and as, as Chris, you know, one of the, one of our favorites is just understanding, managing and measuring that, like what problem are we solving for? How are we managing it? Right. And then how do we have performance feedback measures? around that to do it and that's that's sort of a simple way to get started sort of piece some of these together but that's that's a simplified version of you know how to tackle some of these problems and james what would your approach be would it be any different would it be similar so so i think there's there's it's a similar approach i don't think ryan and i are, are very very far off you know he kind of said the word framework which cringed a bit in my belly, right? Because we have just so many of them. And so many times these frameworks are, I like to consider, look, it's good to have a framework if you're looking at it for what it really is, which is kind of like a checklist, right? It's not really a strategy because in, in security, unfortunately, unfortunately, no two organizations are the same, um, even within the same industry. And so you got to have some sort of checklist to make sure you're covering, you know, all of your bases, you're, you know, you're dotting your I's or crossing your T's. But at the end of the day, you've got to make adjustments to everything you're doing based on your risk appetite, based on the business operations, based on your crown jewels and based on so much more that, that you know, I think that's why we hate frameworks. Um, and I think that's why we dislike the term frameworks is because of that. Is because everything is so different and unique in security. It's not, there's not a, a glove that fits everything. Yeah. James, Ryan, how, would you, that, how would you challenge that? That no, sounds wouldn't. like no. framework versus no framework. 100% agree. Yeah. Actually, probably James to put in, in probably better uh, parlance would be like an approach, right? Because you're right. It's, this is the problem with a lot of the, you know, just sort of the cybersecurity risk frameworks that we see out there. Like no one risk framework fits any one organization perfectly. It just doesn't seem to, to work, right? And we do get, you know, thrown sort of these risk management frameworks all the time. So James, maybe, you know, I might, I might even correct myself and say it's more of an approach, right? A simplified right. approach, say, how do I start solving the problems that are thrown at me in a way that I can at least organize them in my head well enough to be able to articulate what the problems are and then choose some sort of 
you know, framework, if you will, or a management approach or structure to address that particular problem. But I mean, James, you're spot on. Even through multiple, even inside the same industry, right? Either banking or fintech or, you know, even industrial control systems or whatever the case might be for power plants and others. Like no one organization is the same even inside of their own industries. So yeah, choosing a sort of a risk management framework can be really challenging. I would argue, however, that choosing one to start with is a really good place to start, whether it's, you know, the ISO 27,000X, you know, um, you know, COVID, the CNIST, CSF, um, or any of the others might be a good place to start as like a management framework. But again, that's the management piece. That's understanding what your problem is first is probably paramount to them before, before you even jump into a type of management framework. So maybe that's... Let's go backwards on this, Ryan, right? So we yeah. talked about management framework um, and that typically is driven by compliance and by business needs, right? So I'm in uh, financial banking or, or I'm in banking or I'm in ICS. So I've got all these different uh, compliance checklists and, and audits I've got to comply with. And so we typically see, and I think this is one of the uh, key fundamental mistakes that we make as practitioners, is we'll say, what do we need to be compliant with? Okay, what framework works with that compliance? Let's bring it down and then let's start kind of designing or building or framing a program in a way around that rather than let's say, what does our business do? What are our core strengths? How do those operate? Okay. Now I'm going to throw out a challenge here and I'm going to say, let's go to MITRE and let's go to attack and defend. And let's see how do, how does MITRE uh, talk about defending our organization based on our key components that operate our business day to day, meaning business operations. So if I'm a pipeline, um, it could be my pipeline or it can be my, my billing system, you know, in the, in the case of Colonial right, where they shut down the pipeline, not because there was any risk to the flow of oil, they shut down the pipeline because they couldn't bill because the system that was under, that was that was the victim of the ransomware attack was their billing system. It wasn't their OT system. It was their IT system. And so it's, let me go to MITRE, let me start defending, and then let me look at my management docs like a NIST CSF or an ISO or anything else and go, all right, what do I need to complement to meet that standard? Yeah, no, that's good. That's right. I would almost argue that it's, it takes one step above that. And it starts with a crisp, clear problem statement. Why are we even here in the first place? Right. Right. Which, which could sound something like, depending on the industry you're in, it could sound something like protecting our, you know, critical assets, we love to say, or, you know, trying to reduce the loss of, x amount of data that could do harm to the organization right if you're in let's take banking for example the loss of you know particular customer data or the you know the loss of the of, uh, the underlying banking system that could do harm to our our customers and our and the banking system itself that is almost where i would begin the conversation because that then pushes into okay to, in order to protect that now we know why we're here and what we're actually doing for our job, right, to reduce the risk to the organization, then it starts to push into, okay, so now what we understand what the problem looks like, we can start to break down, okay, well, there's going to be compliance pieces, right? There's going to be audit and regulation pieces that we're going to need to comply with, right? And that's one piece. 
There's going to be management pieces that we know our networks and where that data resides, that we're places we have to protect that are here. And then you've got the other piece, which is like, how do we stay ahead of some of the issues, right, that are that are going to be coming at us that we don't even conceptualize at this point, right? Flaws in particular networks or flaws in software that we're not even prepared for, right? And at that point, we understand what the problem looks like. Then we look to a frame and say, all right, which one helps us fit that particular model? And then what do we need to bolt on or add on to it to kind of, you know, work the process, you know, or work the management piece from a sufficient level to be able to identify what, where the risks are in the organization and articulate those risks and then have some sort of management function uh, next to that, right? Because that keeps us away from just, just hyper-focusing on compliance, which naturally is where most people focus, right? Where am I going to, where am I going to get yelled at the most, right? Oh, well, it's going to be, you know, lack of an audit, right? Or failure of an audit. So we're typically where most organizations start the beehive once you get the, you know, the finding, right? Well, the problem with that type of management behavior is it then opens the door for all the other places that you're not looking at. Right? <laughs> so, you, you know, you sort of miss the full scope of like, hey, remember, we got to kind of stay ahead of things. If we can get there as an organization, we might not be able to do it now, but at least we can put it on the on our in our vision, if you will, for overall like organizational risk management to then say, you know, we recognize this is a gap. We're beehiving over here at the moment because we're resource constrained, which everybody is these days, right? But at least we, we're aware of the fact that we're not paying attention to it. Uh, and those are some of the key pieces, I think, help keep our head, you know, broadly looking at what we have to manage uh, versus, you know, sort of shifting from one to the other, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, how would a modern CISO approach some of the challenges that we have today and still take that into consideration, like third-party risk, um, things being outside your control, how do you then bring that in and try to measure effectiveness of your program while dealing with those types of challenges? See, I think so, so the modern CISO is not looking at security as a CISO challenge as a CISO task, but it's looking at it from an organizational perspective, right? So, uh, you know, let me, let me go back to, to start off by saying the first thing I would do, the first thing a modern CISO would do when it comes to a situation like this is go, go across the organization and build their relationships and understand, you know, if you've got a vendor management team within your org, what are they doing? How do they look at security? What is their view of it? when it looks to uh, measuring vendors, meaning are they okay with, you know, the SOC 2 cartel, meaning does a SOC 2 report work for them? Um, and, and, and is that sufficient? Or um, if they go, no, well, you know what? A lot of times you'll hear, you know, in having these frank conversations, they'll go, well, we're kind of relying on you to tell us what we need to look for. Um, and I think this goes back to understanding one, what your company does understanding who the stakeholders are for every piece, because at the end of the day, security, we're not the gods of the organization, right? Meaning we don't get final say on almost anything. Um, rarely do we get first say on anything. We typically are consultants in that whole process. We're consultants of security to our organization. And if you approach that with that mindset, then you understand I've got to go out and build relationships. And I've got to build all these relationships across all these different teams. And it's not just about hiring the brightest talent. It's about hiring the brightest talent that knows how to engage others. 
because I'm going to need to have someone in DevOps that is able to uh, speak security and DevOps and be likable and have the ability to be influential uh, to that team in order to drive a security first culture. And I'm going to have to do the same everywhere else. And when we talk about vendor risk management, you've got to look at your organization as a whole. And that conversation goes to your buyers. So who is buying the product from that third party? What's the purpose for that product? And that becomes us having to put together a, uh, Ryan's going to love this one. He may actually giggle, a sort of framework, right? A sort of, uh, a sort of questionnaire, an internal questionnaire. So are we giving them data or are they giving us data? And what kind of data are they giving us? And then you start to qualify the risk of that specific vendor. And once you've qualified that risk to that vendor, then you kind of go through what kind of information you need from that vendor in order to sustain a business relationship. And you've got to set an audit cycle. So we've started with someone, six months later, someone goes in and goes, are we still in the same level of integration or has our business relationship changed with this vendor? Meaning what was there an upsell or an enhancement in services to where now they're processing more of our data or all of a sudden they're copying, they have PII or, or anything like that. And then if that's the case, now I've got to go and I've got to ask them to provide us with more information in order for us to feel confident to continue to do that business relationship. And this goes into breaking it down. One of the things I do is I have a questionnaire that I share with our vendor risk management folks, right? So we have a, you know, you've got a procurement team so they actually go through and go, all right, how are we connecting? Is it API? Is it SDK? What are we doing? What kind of data is going back and forth? Are we sending data? Are they sending us data? And that generates a level. That level has a list of things that we need. And for the lower level stuff, security isn't even involved, right? It's send us this, send us that. That's fine. We're good. A-okay. Connect. Let business run. For the more complex stuff, security is more thoroughly involved. And that helps divide and conquer. And that's how you've got to be as a CISO today. You, you know, you can't just try to manage everything. You've got to really build those relationships and get advocates looking out for you. So yeah. people are coming to tell you. Yeah, James, I love that. Just to tease that out a little bit. One of the biggest tools in sort of the CISO toolkit, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> had to put that out there is like is that is inviting people into the problem right because typically when you're sitting there you know you're trying to understand manage measure all these pieces right it, it's sort of in your wheelhouse to do that but everybody else has a different job to do and james one of the things you're suggesting is like invite them into the problem set right of what you're trying to solve for and then see where you can build those relations to go forward uh look you know one of the biggest keys here in in the hardest thing in almost any organization is get people to think about security while they're doing their jobs, right? We run the test and you see the results all the time of, you know, there's always a weak link somewhere. So the more individuals inside the organization that you can invite into the problem, right? And get buy-in into how security fits their role matters. Like, so third-party risk management is perfect, right? So if, if we kind of go back to the why are we here? Oh, you know, let's just say data leakage, you know, loss of information that could do harm to the enterprise, right? Okay, where do contracts fit into that, right? Well, 
you can contr contract with a ton of third parties, right? Okay, and this gets to James' point. Like, okay, inside of there, where's your checklist? Where are you making sure to see that the contracts that you're putting out with the third parties have some sort of, you know, security consideration? Now, fortunately, over the last seven years, right, we've, for six or seven years, we've gotten fur further enough down the road on third party risk management to have some sort of checklist, right? But the key here is what happens when that changes? Like what are sort of the, the, you know, you've got your standards and conditions, but what are your sort of alerts that if something changes in the contract, you know, that uh, whoever the third party is, right, you, on, you, you can see that from a security standpoint. The more you can work with the legal team and the contracts team and inviting them into, hey, this is the harm to the organization that these type of third parties can, can introduce, if, especially if you're connecting them to data or networks that actually have access to what you would consider critical information, right? This is the harm that that, ha that that brings to the organization. Invite them into the problem, fit it into how you're managing it, put a certain person, ideally a contracts person, in charge of it, <laughs> if you can, right? And then you can start to see sort of maturity over time uh, to solve that problem. But you know, that's that's one that's one possible way of doing it. But it's a it's a big piece because a lot of times, you know, from the CISO perspective, you know, the weight's kind of on your shoulders to identify all the risk and and translate it to the business and get it out to the individual so that they understand what the impact of the organization is. Right. So inviting others into the problem set, you know, can help uh, solve the problem internally. Right. One of the, the, the comments, such a great guest. Uh, good to see you on this platform, Ryan. And this comes from the, the whole Cyberhuman Initiative, um, which is Paul Cummings, one of our uh, longtime guests. Um, but in, in uh, response to that, James, how do you see a modern CISO um, adjusting to this remote-only culture that a lot of organizations are having to deal with today with the pandemic with people being alerted to, hey, this is this is great for me. I have more family balance. Look, I can have lunch with my, my wife and come back to work. Like, how do, how do they deal with the risk that's then introduced for having that flexibility? I, I don't know that that introduced new risk, to be honest. I think that anyone who looks at it as new risk is is maybe flawed to begin with like the, the whole idea of people working from home or having flexibility is flawed um you know i i remember early on in my career in security when i'd be speaking to my peers and they'd be like oh yeah we've set up alerts so that if someone works after 7 p.m that's an, an unusual login and that flags everything and we disable everything and we make it really uncomfortable for that person to work and i'm like why uh, what if someone just works better at night like someone goes all right i put my kids to sleep and i spend an hour with my wife and she goes to bed but i can't sleep till three in the morning so i log into work and from you know 10 30 p.m to 2 30 a.m i am like plugged in working so why is that considered a negative why is that specific habit bad um if there's one thing we've been able to learn over the last few years is no the, the idea of normal no longer exists, just does not exist anymore. The, the, there's no such thing as normal when it comes to the workplace. Um, I know people who log in to work at 5 a.m., will log out to take their kids to school now because they work from home, come back at 10, right? 
work until three, log out at three, come back at eight to finish their day. So this kind of preconceived notion of um, work hours no longer exists, takes it out of the equation. So now you've got to start really understanding automation and you've really got to build on machine learning, right? I'm not going to say AI because I don't think there's enough AI out there right now to talk about this, right? So see you laughing, Chris, but yeah, there, there's no such thing as, you know, good AI for this, but this is where you rely on machine learning and good security partners, right? So you go, let's study someone's behavior over a period of time um, and then understand what that behavior is and only then start to recognize anomalies. Let's not set a barrier of behavior that we think should be within an organization. And again, this kind of goes to the idea away from what traditional security thinking was all about, which is think in a box and a network was an office address with a floor address, um, you know, kind of now our network is everywhere. Our endpoints are all over the place and you're, nothing's going to go back to the way it was before, right? We're, we're going to be in this position for a ver- for the foreseeable future and it's even going to get worse as we go along. So you've got to really start rethinking how you manage specific aspects and how you utilize technology effectively to help you defend uh, these specific threats that before you would say, someone's logging in out of network, that's it, game over. Or um, someone's trying to log in at 3 a.m., must be the Russians or Chinese, right? Not always. Yeah, this is the interesting thing about the, what the pandemic has taught us. Like, you know, all of the lessons learned will eventually be captured one day and we'll be reading about it for years later, right? But you highlight a good point, which is like, it kind of took the risk that was a, for, for some organizations, right? And shifted it all the way to, you know, a, a different side of uh, the management piece, which not all organizations were looking at. I mean, you basically took, for, for most organizations, that had employees in physical locations, right? Who you had your network monitoring and all the different monitoring in place there. And you had this wholesale shift to remote work, right? Think about that from a, from just an IT facilitation standpoint, right? The, the, the assets themselves, the endpoints, right? The networks themselves, the connectivity, right? Even heck from a personal standpoint, some of the connectivity and the bandwidth issues. Right. Not to mention, not to mention, you know, uh, um, some other issues we won't get into now from an IP addressing standpoint. But then from a security standpoint, as yeah, now you have all of your individuals instead of being on one, you know, sort of network enclave are now widely distributed. Uh, and it starts to, you know, shifts the risk to, all right, well, how do we actually monitor these appropriately? How do we know? How do you authenticate individuals appropriately? Right. For those that didn't even have VPN set up, like that was a huge challenge. Right. And it seems crazy to think that, you know, organizations in 2020 wouldn't have an appropriate VPN. Right. But that was a thing. Right. So you kind of go back to the early, earlier days of remote working uh, for some organizations that just were not prepared for it and have shifted the risk to, okay, now you've got workers that are remote connecting remotely. You have to authenticate them. You have to understand that they are who they say they are. As James mentioned, they're working odd hours, so your behavioral you know, analytics, if you're even running those to try to understand you know, some sort of element of risk, changes widely, right? Most people are at home with families, <laughs> right? So, of course, their hours are going to change. And, and it sort of took this model that you could normalize, right, and kind of see where the outliers were to see where potentially, like, risk was, and it completely shattered it, right, And, and <clears throat> from organizations that weren't prepared for remote work. 
And that's just the IT risk, right? Then you have like the uh, OPSEC risk risk for those that are familiar with it, were just, you know, operation security, like communications where people would work from home and maybe, I don't know, they would have a whiteboard behind them with the strategy of the organization, right? But being on an open Zoom call, right? Or Zoom was huge in the early days, right? When it was early days, I say that like it was that long ago. <laughs> You're making it sound old, Ryan. I mean, I know. on now. Probably 20, 22 months ago. But like these things, you know, people didn't think about it. Like how many times were, were you all on calls? I'll ask you this. It's interesting. How many times were you on calls where, you know, if you're with friendly people, you could say, and forgive me if this is going to happen to anybody, Alexa, play Coldplay. And all of a sudden, everybody's Alexa would play up. Like, you have listening devices listening to the whole conversation. Are you considering open microphones, right? And all the, like, the individual training pieces that organizations had to go through, that was a huge shift of risk for most organizations in the early days of the pandemic. Um, you know, arguably most have sort of, you know, normalized on now. But it was a big issue, um, Chris, to kind of circle back to your point of like getting people 100% remote. Like there was a, it, was, it didn't introduce new risks. It just really highlighted ones that may or may not have been on the, the well, radar scope. You know, Ryan, you brought up something really interesting about VPNs. What about how many how many companies were you surprised where employees had desktop computers where in the pandemic they were scheduling people to drive up and someone from IT would be carting out a desktop saying, take this plug it in, all the wires are hooked in, this is where you hook all these different wires, and call me if you have any questions, here's your desktop, plug it in, and you're like, because there was a laptop shortage, and some organization, they never let employees work outside of work hours, right? Yeah. So it was like, here's your desktop, here's a monitor, here's a computer, drive up to the office, we'll cart it out to you, and you can uh, go home and plug it all in and work. I mean, it felt like 1997 all over again. Yeah, crazy, right? All the things that you would normally think of, that we would normally think of as like the things you would consider, all of a sudden you're forced to consider them and then you've got the shortages. Yeah, it's a real it's a real challenge, right? I, I think think, this, go ahead, Ryan, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say, and think about the time frame which it happened, right? It happened, you know, I would almost overnight, it felt like, right? We were kind of like March, March, you know, St. Patty's Day came and then all of a sudden, boom. You know, it was right before the weekend, and now everybody's got to be locked down at home. It's like, oh, what do you do? <laughs> right? You know, I, I think that's 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 the one thing about business continuity plans, right? If you had it, you know, you were kind of – at RSA, people were reading into it, right, that year. Because that was the last RSA I, I did, and that was probably the last RSA I'll ever do again. But <laughs> um, – but, but if you look at it, right, like you started looking at this and going, all right, what are we doing next? I mean, I remember I, I, I was in Israel the week where things were getting really serious and we had landed in Israel. It was Saturday morning. And I remember Saturday night Netanyahu had his first press conference and he was indicating that where Israel's heading towards locking everything down. And we were a team of four. And we sent two people home the next day. I mean, they spent more time flying to Israel than in actual Israel, right? Like literally they spent, I think, 40 hours flying and there were 20 hours in Israel. Like they got to eat lunch on Saturday and then they were they were on a plane at 5 a.m. Sunday morning. But they made it home, right? Yeah, well, they made it home. We, I left with, with, with uh, the, the person I was with 
we were playing poker every day, right? We were like, Texas Hold'em, what's this going to be? Until it locked down, right? And then we left on the last flight out of Israel before Israel locked down and came home. And then we had the U.S. lockdown uh, subsequently, like a few days, I think a week later after we came back, because you're right, we came back. I came back around, uh, I think it was like March 11th or 12th. And then the following week is when everything went on lockdown. Yep. But organization if, if you missed all of that then that's on you but this brought up i think a better conversation for so many people um if you were able to leverage it was looking at the business and now going to your cio cio and going you didn't want to budget for laptops right because the desktops we had still had life on them right we still had the depreciation in the books year over year but now we can't find it oh by the way if we find laptops we're paying a premium because well the people who are selling them can say, well, you want it? It was 500. Now it's uh, 550. What are we going to do? You know, it's logistics. It's, you know, profits are still yeah. everywhere. Now, I haven't seen, you know, a big company suffer shortages uh, in profits over this pandemic. Before we go down this, this rabbit hole, uh, let's pivot it back. And I think an interesting aspect with regards to what the pandemic proved is how do we ensure that organizations are resilient to these types of pandemics? And uh, uh, how does a modern CISO ensure that while this might be in or outside of their scope, uh, that it's done for the organization? Yeah, great question. So he, here's getting back to this sort of that, that, that approach that you know James and I were talking about at the beginning, right? It's like, what's the problem? right? We're trying to solve for, you know, the loss of critical data, right? Then once you figure that out, like you've got a management approach for this, right? This is the whole quote framework piece. The beauty, this is the one piece we, we, we didn't highlight, and it's worth probably highlighting now. The beauty of actually using a, you know, a risk management sort of framework in the beginning is it keeps your visibility. Remember we said like bolt on pieces to it that fit the organization. It keeps your visibility on things that you otherwise wouldn't be thinking about in the moment, right? I mean, there's this whole idea behind, you know, strategy and execution. And so many times we're just so caught up in execution, 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 tactics, tactics, that we forget to use like a basketball analogy to get off of the court and into the stands or at least in the coaching seat and look at like how the game's being played and how we're, how we're making it work. Right. So forgive the sports analogy, but like, but the issue here is like a framework can say, look, okay, this is this land, the conversation we were just having lands in business continuity, disaster recovery and, and response, right? And it is the one area that most organizations under index on, which means like they just don't spend a lot of time on it. Like how many times, you know, when you, when you sit back and you look at your whole portfolio, where is most of the conversation happening, right? It's usually happening around detection, right? Um, a little bit of prevention, right? But detection, prevention, right? We're not really focused that much, typically as organizations, on identifying what the real issues. Let's use like NIST CSF, right? It's the easy sort of drop on top of this, right? So identify like what's really critical. Do you really have an asset management system, right? Or a way of, <laughs> whoa, that's a hot button. But <laughs> do you have a way of categorizing, understanding what assets you have? And then of those, can you identify what's really critical? Right. This gets back to the main point of like, why are we here to protect that? Right. OK, so now what are we doing to protect it? Right. What are we doing to detect you know, issues around it? But the response and recover side get very little attention. And so, Chris, this is where 
you know, I would look at it and say, all right, look, you have to sit back and think strategically about how you're managing your programs. So when these things happen, right, and they're going to take they're going to hit, they're going to hit hard and you're not going to be expecting them. And all of a sudden your company's going to be beehiving on an issue to reduce the business impact, you know, to, to, to the actual business. You know, as James points out, like you've got to fit into, right, how the business is running and what the business does for, you know, sorry, organization, right? It could be, doesn't have to be necessarily business, but what the main um, operating mission is for the business. You've got to plug into that. But if you can sit back and sort of look at it from a broad perspective and check in on some of those other pieces, response and recovery, it'll, it helps in times like this, right? And in fact, you know, I've had one or two uh, CISOs remind me, right? Never let an incident go to waste, right? These are always good. <laughs> Right? I think those James, I was laughing. Like, this is what happens, right? You want to look at these incidents, like, okay, how can I be better prepared in the future? And where in sort of my broader risk management, like focus was, were we as an organization unaware of these things? And how do we tighten that up for the future so that when the next emergency hits that we're not looking at, right, that we're at least ready to respond to it and, and recover. So that's, that's one area where like, <laughs> hate to say it, but like a, you know, your management approach, the way you're managing the, or the, 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 the cybersecurity risk inside the organization, or at least the, at least the identification of it and the communication of it, you know, run it through to see if, you know, what, however you're managing it can account for some of these issues and have you spent time on it, right? Recently, right? Response planning. That's great. Like how often do you actually look at your response plans? How often do you exercise them? You know, they could be tabletop or real or whatever. But the fact is, when something happens, can you quickly, you know, respond and recover? So that's one one way um, to kind of bring it back to the point of the show. Uh, you know, on the management side, one way to make sure that your management structure, right, accounts for these things and you're putting some attention to it. I don't know. That's that's one thought. And and then James, just using using the point of never let a good incident go to waste. How would you? How would the modern CISO respond to, say, a log for J incident, and use that to ensure that your assets that are generating revenue remain resilient to future type vulnerabilities, and your organization is able to effectively respond to supply chain risks like that? So when you, I, I love how you brought up log for J on this one, right? But but I think we have to look at it not from the crisis perspective as much as it is from the relationship perspective. Because you have to remember a few things. Chances are, if you're a CISO of an organization that's using Log4j, that decision of using that type of code, that type of product within your organization was done long before you were ever thought of being hired for your organization. And chances are there's someone in there who made that decision, who may or may not still be in the organization. And a lot of times we tend to go out and want to point out the fact that, hey, this is the end of life. We shouldn't have used this to begin with. But guess what? How many people do you think actually knew that they, they, they had, you know, that specific product supporting a key component of whatever their business does? Not many. I guarantee you that if we went pre-log4j and if we could go back in time right now, right, and kind of use the Stewie from Family Guy time machine, 
and go back in time three weeks and say, put out a survey on LinkedIn and say, how many of you guys know if you have lock for j in your environment? You'd probably get a 95% no. One, because knowing everything that's in your environment is really, really hard because you're relying on you know your third parties who don't always disclose everything they're using within the tools and products that they support with you, right? So you know what Paul is saying here, Pandora's box with the asset inventory is, is, is very, very true. But then here's the here's the other piece to this, which I think is really critical. We don't want to we don't want to let this go to waste, but we also want to be very strategic and diplomatic with how we do this, right? So going and saying everyone should have listened to us, we should have phased out Java two years ago when I said we should have, you know, not going to get you any fans and definitely not going to get people to look at you and, and want to work with you at that point, right? So let's first of all kind of take a step back and go. I'm not going to let this go to waste with my board and probably with the CEO when I have my one-on-one with them. Within the organization, I'm going to manage this in the same way I would manage anything else. It's business as usual. There's a zero day. There's a significant amount of patches. Let's figure out what patch is right for us, where it's being used, and who's responsible for patching. One of the biggest things in Log4j if you talk to a lot of practitioners since this happened, has been the who's responsible for patching something. So if it's running on your system that I have, are you responsible for patching this or am I responsible? Right? And I think that's really critical because that's something that has not been discussed very often. But now we can have this conversation, right? So this is where we go, all right, let's set up a bunch of calls with all these different vendors and let's get a shared responsibility model on the contract. Who's responsible to patch what? Right? And if not, then how do we essentially get this taken care of going forward? And then when I'm sitting with the board, when I'm sitting with the CEO, these this is the kind of stuff I'm bringing in. But I'm not bringing in as saying, I'm the CISO and I'm all-knowing. I'm saying, listen, we're, we're looking at this from a business perspective. We need to reopen all contracts with all of these specific vendors. And we got to get this shared responsibility model in there. And Mr. CEO or, 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 or gentlemen or, or gentle ladies of the board, I need your support to where if we need to sever a business relationship or replace something, you'd be willing to back it up if we can't get this contractually done because it, it increases the risk of our organization going forward, right? And I think that's, that's the aspect of you don't want to let a good kind of crisis go to waste, you know, almost using the, uh, the, the Washington DC mantra, right? Never let a good crisis go to waste, but you don't want to do it in the way where you create panic or you create antagonism towards you. This crisis is going to be short lived in the life cycle of the business, right? But your career is not, if you, if you don't want your career to be as short lived as the, the crisis itself, then you've got to be able to navigate the swamp of the corporate world in a way where you're able to go and make friends so that the people who are patching or need help feel comfortable to reach out to you without knowing that you're going to throw them under the bus unless you really have to, right? Unless there, there's pure negligence at that point, then, you know, that's a, we can talk about that. That's, that's, that's the, that's the outlayer, not, not the real thing. But then how do you take that and communicate it up to, to executive leadership? Uh, 
when you're sitting one-on-one with the CEO and you talk about the different things that need to change from a business perspective and you get the CEO on board where in the next C-suite meeting that he does, he talks about where are we on all these vendors and reopening contracts? I'm letting you guys know right now, if we don't get this stuff resolved by uh, February 28th or 27th or 25th or March 30th, and we don't get this stuff on the books by the end of the first quarter, um, get different vendors to do this work yeah. and find competitors and, and, and we're going to move elsewhere. Yeah, that's exactly it. Where it's almost like the flip of the reaction, right? Typically, you know, in the risk world we live in, we're constantly reacting to things, right? And then trying to get a handle on them. And, you know, it's, it's like, you know, every day feels like IR, right? Incident response. It, it's not easy to do. But James, what was part of what I'm hearing you say is like, and, and we've seen this sometimes in practice, is you take that opportunity to flip it. Like, okay, I've got a ton of initiatives that I've been asking for for a year, or you know, our team's been asking for for a year, right? And I haven't been able to get any traction on them. We've got this, you know, issue that just set everybody's hair on fire, which we're dealing with, right? But if you can take a step back and think, all right, what are the initiatives that I need to push through that I either didn't get in this budget or have been asking for that are relative to this particular issue, right? Um, and how do I actually craft the message to slide it through you know, the organization, sort of use, use the crisis to help protect the organization because now you've got the attention. You know, that sounds a lot of like DC spin and you're right, James, it probably is, but it can be helpful. Right? <laughs> Say like, okay, listen, we've got this issue. Here are some of the things we've been asking for, for, you know, third-party risk management, right? Here's some of the, I mean, heck, even, you know, again, back to the asset management piece, we've been trying to, I've been asking for pieces to like really sort of like footprint our network and see what we've actually got, right? Uh, either from a third-party risk standpoint or from a current network standpoint, right? And see what we actually have so we can track down these kind of issues and be able to identify them should they come up. These are opportunities to raise them to the board and go to, you know, um, the executives and talk with she or he about like, Hey, this is, this is what we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. And that's, that's wildly helpful sometimes to, to use, um, you know, diplomacy matters there. And James, I think you said, you don't go beat somebody over the head with like, I told you I we've wanted this because now you're into the blame game. Right. Um, and that's le less productive than it is to say, look, we have an issue it was deprioritized for whatever reason at this moment in time, probably irrelevant. The board will ask some questions and somebody will have to answer that. But now that we're here, here's some of the initiatives that we've been asking for maybe quarter four, quarter three, you know, or, or earlier or later, right. That we need to do that would address this issue in the future. And, you know, it is a little bit of executive beehiving, right. But you can get them hyper-focused on some of the initiatives that you need relative to the, to the crisis to then help them, you know, advance some of the initiatives that maybe you had in the out, out quarters uh, and, and weren't ready for yet. And, and even, you know, this can even play in for some of the big pieces like hiring, right? I mean, it's just not just the tooling side, but also your people side and maybe your process and procedures and stuff. So, you know, that's always a helpful approach as well. Yeah, absolutely. Great point, Ryan. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going and, and, and build it out fit it into the plan and ask for more, always ask for more, right? And never miss an opportunity to ask for more um, and, and encourage dialogue. I think one of the biggest things we should do in, in areas of crisis 
is really talk about the importance of the relationships across with our competitors from a security perspective um, where, you know, you, you and I, Ryan, could be fellow CISOs at competing companies, but from a relationship perspective, unlike every other department maybe in the business that, you know, th there's that, that friendly competition, we're more into how can we really help each other? Because what I'm seeing is probably what you're seeing. And there's probably stuff you're seeing that I'm not seeing and that I'm seeing that you're not seeing that can really help us deal with specific threats. And, and I think that's the other critical aspect of this, which is, you know, when we're sitting with our CEOs, um, one of the biggest things and with the board that's always been kind of pushed back on is the idea of information sharing. And we've really got to fight back on it. And we've really, this is an opportunity to go, we really need to have more information sharing with our partners um, within the industry beyond the ISAC, right? Beyond just, you know, sending something to our respective ISAC that then processes and sends, sends it out, but more of the, hey, clear-cut discussions, could we get a mutual non-disclosure agreement at high levels where these things could be discussed um, in a way that would support both our organizations. And I've rarely seen people fight me back, push back on it when it's presented at a time of crisis. Now, if you present it when it's all flowers, it's sunny outside, it's 90 degrees, everyone's in the park, no one really wants to work, you're probably going to get shut down because it's not going to be relevant. At a time of crisis, it, it tends to work itself out. And by the way, the White House did just that right after the Colonial Pipeline when they brought in 30 CEOs uh, to meet with President Biden and had the cyber summit that uh, um, Ann Neuberger and, and, and CISA put together um, at the White House um, with the CEOs and, and everyone pledging, I think it was like $300 billion were pledged to cybersecurity over five years by some of these big companies. Um, I think that's, that's how you have to look at it is going... All right, that was a moment of opportunity, colonial, to bring all of these CEOs into the White House, to ask them about security, but also talk about it. Um, and then every single one of them wanted to pledge what they were going to do more for security, right? And I think Microsoft said they were going to put $20 billion in over five years. Chase said they were going to put 20 or Microsoft was at 20 or $30 billion, I forgot. But they were putting in a lot of money into security over the next five years. So... I, th I think, you know, that that's another one where they didn't let that opportunity go to waste. Yeah, that's it. It reminds me of uh, nothing unifies people like a common enemy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, and that you get 50 percent of the way there with like, hey, we've got this common enemy out there. We're fighting. Let's all come together. Right. And fight it, especially, James, as you point out, like a lot of organizations, even today, still have multiple people sort of how do you say this? Not owning the risk per se, right? Because that should be an organizational task, but not all organizations look at it that way. Um, so forgive me for those that, <laughs> that kind of rubs you the wrong way. But, you know, for those that actually own the management of it, right? I mean, how many organizations do you see where there's like a chief information security officer, but they only own sort of, you know, sort of the management of it where there's a chief technology risk officer or something along those lines, which actually owns the implementation piece. And then, of course, it, in a world where, and Chris, you you asked this question at the top of the top of the discussion here, which is like, you know, 
how do you just not be a cost function? Like, look, IT is typically a cost, typically, right? It's a support function for most organizations, right? Absent those that IT is the actual product or service, right? For most organizations, information technology is supporting the organization, which means there's a cost associated, right? Information security, you know, is kind of a cost function inside of that. And so if you have that management piece split between two, there's a fight for the what's in the trough. So one way to sort of help solve that, that I've seen work, and James, I think it's what you're alluding to, is like, speak to the higher power. Like, why are we here, right? This gets to the White House piece you mentioned. Like, we're here because there's this common risk, right, that we're all facing called, you know, you know, (laughs) yeah, exactly, right? And, and, but that's it. And then you get the, okay, look, we're trying to keep our confidentiality, integrity, and availability of our data, right? So we don't harm our organizations. How do we work together? And that, that works at the national level. That can work at the local level. That can work at the organization level and even interdepartmental. So that's a good point. Like it, 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 it helps, right? Gets everybody on the same page. And then, Jay. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, when it comes to like, tackling the, the the celebrity vulnerability of the day. We'll use that terminology that I stole from someone because I love it. And tackling those celebrity vulnerabilities, do you think enough organizations have a well-managed approach to how they would tackle and then remediate and then learn from any errors that might've occurred um, in the implementation so that they're more resilient in the long run? Are you talking about from a uh, the celebrity itself, or are you talking about from the victim of the celebrity? The, the victim of the celebrity. So say the celebrity is Log4J. How do we respond to that and then l- register our lessons learned so that we have a more resilient program going forward? So, so let's start with Log4J. Log4J is now on its fourth patch, right? Patch number four, we're at 2.17.1. Okay, we started at 2.15, went to 2.16, went to 2.17, went to 2.17.1. At this point, you internally as an organization are looking at the Apache Foundation and going like, uh, like, give me your best meme at this point, right? Like, hand raised, pick your favorite character that does it. And, 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 and throw it in here. Um, you're prepared because generally we're prepared to deal with patching systems, right? Um, and in most mature or even semi-mature, semi-mature security programs, we know we have a way to patch things up because guess what? We've got a Tuesday every month where everyone decides that that's going to be the day we're going to have 792 patches and there's someone in IT that's going like, oh, shit. And right, they're like, all right, let's start seeing which one of these are actually for us, which ones are not, how critical really is it? And then you get your patch committee together, and then you kind of put together an action plan and you go forth with it, right? I'm not talking about your office updates, okay, which should be automatic at this point. And if they're not, then, you know, I think we should chop off a finger just to teach you a lesson, right? Like, Patching that can be automated, automate. The stuff that can be automated, have your patch committee in place with the stakeholders and get that meeting done 
on that Tuesday or that Wednesday, Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday morning, or, or that Wednesday, and, and then and then go forth and, and, and be fruitful and multiply, right? But th that specific piece of like, let's say log 4J of the celebrity one, it's very hard, man. This year has been nothing but celebrity zero days and vulnerabilities, right? We can start off with print nightmare. We can go to, you know, uh, um, uh, a proxy shell uh, on exchange and so many others like, I mean, we've been back to back with patches that have come out where we've had to, you know, repatch a product because the patch was incomplete or wasn't tested all the way through. Um, and there's little I can do when I use a company like Microsoft or if we're using Log4j, that's not our decision to be used, but rather by one of our vendors. And now the person they're relying on for it has four patch cycles to fix something. Like... At some point, we have to look at this from a security perspective and stop taking responsibility for all of it and not pass the buck, but really, you know, look at the business and say, listen, patching is imperfect. We're not always going to get it right the first time around, especially when we're working on speed, right? When there's, you know, already exploits happening in the wild, which was what happened with Log4j, right? The moment it got disclosed, there were people scanning for it and there were exploits. There were like, I think, six exploits in the wild already within 24 or 36 hours of, of reporting the vulnerability. So I can understand why we needed four patch cycles because you were looking at what was taking place. You were patching it, pushing it out so people weren't falling victim to what was out there. You were trying to catch, you're trying to keep up the pace with what the threat actors and our adversaries were doing. And, and I think that that's, that's a big piece of it is we, we can't take all of that um, and, and hold responsibility for it and think that, oh, well, how do we deal with it? Well, if there's four patch cycles, there's four patch cycles. There's nothing you, myself, Ryan, or anyone else could do uh, when it comes to that. None of us could influence it. I think yeah. one of the major, major things that came out of this, right, is back to the asset management Pandora box that we opened up earlier, is that now we can go to the business and we can say, I think this is a reasonable business case for you to better understand um, everything that's in your applications that you're using to support and enable your business. And if you don't have an understanding from that from your vendor, we need to do that and make that part of the, the contract. Use the SBOM, which is a software bill of materials, include that in contractual obligations so that you understand what risks you're inheriting from your vendor. And if you're designing it yourself, make sure that you understand from your developers that they're creating that internal SBOM themselves, that you understand what code is in your, your, your code re repository, that you're scanning those, that you, you control what code comes in, and then you have that better approach to application security. Yeah, and also remind them that uh, the problem's only gonna get worse. Because right? let's be honest, technology is flawed. It's built by humans that are flawed, right? So we can always use these examples. It's like, hey, this is just today's example of what's going to happen. So to get to the, you know, the, the main point, Chris, you asked, which is like, how do you prepare for this in the future? And you get and, and tie in what James was saying earlier, which is like, you got to invite the, the executive team in and say, look, these things are going to continue to happen and we need to be prepared for these, right? For when they show up. And here's kind of what we need to be prepared for them when they show up. So that we're not putting the company at more risk when we when they're discovered, right, or when they're at least you know 
when the vulnerability is actually uh, announced to the world, which just heightens all the issues. So that can help as well. This just being being ready for more because it's it's not getting better. It's getting worse, right? I'd almost I'd almost be willing to say that we should stop the way we disclose vulnerabilities and almost create a uh, a inner sanctum of approved people that get these vulnerabilities early so that we can start patching them instead of putting it out all over the freaking worldwide web and and every single person does this um would you know would be very very helpful meaning you know i think with log4j specifically it, it would have been nice had they just you know kind of reached out to everyone who's using the library and gone like hey do this patch we're about to disclose this in in 10 days get this patch now um, and update it and then reported it. Uh, I think if you were going to talk about anything about these celebrity vulnerabilities, as you call them, Chris, um, we ought to start talking about how we disclose them. Yeah, that, that is a, we'll, that's a week-long we'll that discussion. For, <laughs> we'll leave that for another um, CISO Thursday and um, look to invite Ryan back another time. I, we had a great conversation today. So Ryan, thank you for coming on. Um, just as a, a mention for Ryan, he does have a new book out. Ryan, you want to tell the audience about your book? <laughs> well, first, Chris, thanks for having me on. James, great to see you again. And uh, yeah, no surprise here. The book's called uh, Understanding, Managing, and Measuring Cybersecurity Risk out by <laughs> A-Press. Um, it literally uh, just hit the resellers today. So um, have a look for it. So you can search it under understanding, measure, managing, and measuring cybersecurity risk. But thanks for having me on, Chris and James. Great to see you again. And James, um, you, you, you also too, did a keynote at FutureCon. Uh, you you want to tell them about your keynote? Yeah, so I did uh, the first, um, I, I did the keynote to close off the year for FutureCon for Kim and her awesome team here in Atlanta. Uh, on the modern CISO and Kim was kind enough to let me put it on the CISO talk podcast channel. So you can go listen to it um, on any of your favorite listening podcast, listening platforms. Um, it's, it was a live recording. So there's a lot of audience engagement by the way. So um, you guys will definitely enjoy it. It's a, it's, it's ahead of my book called the modern CISO, which uh, should be out, I believe third quarter next year, but you know, keeping my fingers uh, that we're able to meet that deadline. Perfect. Well, links to all of those are available in the show notes. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, whether you are on LinkedIn, on YouTube, or podcast after the fact. Feel free to share us with all your friends and family, and have a great Thursday. Thanks, everyone. In the rapidly evolving world of cybersecurity, your business needs a guide that's as dynamic as the threats you face. CPF Coaching LLC delivers unparalleled expertise to elevate your cybersecurity startup or business with a decade and a half of specialized experience. We're not just advisors, we're your strategic partners in growth and risk mitigation. Our tailored advisory services range from immediate hourly guidance to comprehensive three or six month packages, all supported with encrypted messaging for real-time assistance. For more information, cpfcoaching.com is your destination. Forge a path to success and distinction in the cybersecurity landscape. Connect with CPF Coaching LLC today and secure your business's future.